We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, welcome into Candlestick Chronicles, a 49ers podcast on the Blue Wire Podcast Network. I'm Kyle Madsen. I write about the 49ers for NinersWire.com, part of USA Today. Part of the USA Today Sports Media Group. We're keeping that in. Whatever. Uh, joining me right now, Chris Biederman of the Sacramento Bee, and we're about to be joined by a legend. Ray Ratto came on the show. I just got some wild feedback in my headphones. I was scared, but Ray Ratto came on the show um, and he was phenomenal. And it was uh, it wasn't the typical type of conversation we have on this podcast. It was a much more, uh, I guess, 25,000 square feet view of football and sports and comparing and contrasting eras some 49er comparisons a lot of bill walsh um some baseball talk and how to save baseball which i thought w- was fascinating um but no ray's like ray's a living legend he's he's been around bay area sports for as long as just about everybody except maybe art spander <laughs> and shout out shout to out art. to art <laughs> shout out to cool. art um, but no, Ray is Ray's one of the one of the smartest sports minds anywhere. Um, and definitely within the Bay Area. And uh super funny, obviously. And man, it was it was a pleasure to have him. It wasn't it wasn't the uh the draft the draft all twenty two deep dive that I'm sure we'll take at some point, but it was a uh it was a really enjoyable conversation to talk to him about just about the Niners and sports and kind of everything. Yeah, it, it it felt like if we had tried to keep the conversation 40 minutes of 49ers, it wouldn't have been that fun. We did get an awesome Miles Hartsfield take off the top. Great question by you. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. I know, I know, I know Ray's been in the lab for a while, so it's just grinding all 22, just all over it. No, uh, here's Ray Ratto. Terrific conversation. Enjoy. Hey, this is George Kittle, and you're listening to Candlestick Chronicles. Kittle in Denver territory. Kittle is going to go. Touchdown. Bosa's got him, and a sack him back inside the 30-yard line. Nick Bosa drops Aaron Rodgers for a 13-yard loss. Hey, Ray Rado's here, and Ray, we were talking about this you. before the pod. What? You. Yeah. <laughs> no, we were talking about this before the pod, and 
we've had a, a bunch of barrier writers on this show. Uh, Tim Kawakami, Matt Barrows, Matt Mayo. I think you're the most famous barrier writer we've ever had. No. Uh, Kawakami's no? bigger. There, there, are, there are plenty of people who are bigger than me. Uh, I don't know. Oh, you want to argue with me? <laughs> you, have a, you have a Wikipedia page. I, any chimp can get a Wikipedia page. <laughs> No, so happy to have you, man. Thanks. Uh, thanks. Uh, thanks so much for making time. We, uh, Chris mentioned a while back. Somehow you came up in a conversation. I don't know how or why. A uh, huge mistake. But uh, we were like, yeah, we should get CFRA. Come on. And then uh, you and I had some professional mishaps, and that got put on hold. No, they weren't mishaps. We got laid off. That's <laughs> okay. not a mishap. fair enough. Mishap is tripping over a stair. <laughs> Well, uh, we were talking about inaccuracies on your Wikipedia page. It does say uh, currently employed by KGMZ FM. So that's one thing we got to fix. Well, whoever did the page can fix that because I don't care. <laughs> Ray, before we get started, uh, you know, we, we have questions about the Niners and the 80s and when, when you covered them more closely during the dynastic times. But bef- before we get into that, I'm just really curious but what you're what your scouting report is on Miles Hartsfield and and how you think he can help the 49ers secondary. He's a malevolent little creep. (laughs) I think he's probably going to either undermine them by accident or deliberately throw a game later in the year. Okay. Can I report that? Yeah, write that down. Uh, Sure. After you tell me who the hell Miles Hartsfield is. (laughs) He's a uh, defensive back that they just signed. We're we're kidding, oh, of course. I think you nailed the scouting. Bastard. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I I mean, one thing you have such a unique perspective, given you've seen so much winning in so many different sports throughout Bay Area history, and um, whether it is the the eighties Niners or you know the current Warriors or you know the the quote unquote even years Giants, like. Being around and or observing those teams, when it comes to like greatness, is there a common thread that those teams have in your experience and in your observations? Um, I don't know if there's a common thread only because the Giants were so much different than the others. The others, you know, tripped over or aggressively sought out a single magical person who led to acquiring other magical people. I mean, even USF in the fifties, you know, they, they got Bill Russell who nobody thought was going to be much of anything out of high school. And he became the most dynamic basketball player of the 1960s. And the 49ers, you know, drafted Joe Montana in the third round because they knew what he was going to be, but knew that they could pass on him for the first two rounds. I mean, just, you know, nobody thought Montana would be that. Nobody thought Stephen Curry would be what he became. So in those three instances, it was largely, you know, part luck, part genius in finding the one person who could all of a sudden magically change a non-entity of a program. Uh, the Giants were different in that they were more constructed by really good scouting and you know some real good luck with pitchers but nobody of the of the level of talent that we were talking about with the other three players so i would say the giants are they're the team that doesn't fit that definition but 
the other three very much, you know, were they were touched by magic. And magic became a plan and a plan became a credo. I think we're seeing the the tail end of that that Warriors team, obviously, that Steph Curry led Warriors team, but the 49ers are in kind of a weird spot now because they've made these was it three runs in the last four years. Is Kyle Shanahan on that level of um, I guess genius for lack of a better word that can get the Niners to the level that they got in the eighties or that the Warriors got more recently? Uh, Genius is probably the wrong word because he's more of a pragmatist and less of a visionary than Mm. Bill Walsh was or, or, um, or Steve Kerr was Um, in that he has accepted the fact that it is hard to get, a genuine franchise quarterback. So he has constructed a team that bypasses that part of the operation by building a superb defense, an excellent running game, and allowing the quarterback to be good and efficient, but not great. And I think a lot of teams believe that you can't win without an elite quarterback. And Shanahan has decided to try to disprove that. They haven't won at all yet, but I think they've done exceedingly well operating against the grain. I don't know that that's genius, though, because his father built teams that way, and all of his father's contemporaries built teams that way. He almost, I think you could almost say, he reached back into the past for the template of the of the now. And while he's still looking for that elite quarterback, he's built a system that doesn't require one. Well, when you say Bill Walsh is is a visionary and a genius, well, what specifically do you mean by that? Like, what about what he did made him a visionary sort of beyond his peers? The West Coast offense, which, you know, he adapted from other coaches, but he ratcheted it up several more notches by, you know, making the uh, the offense function around the idea that you can use the running back as a pass catcher um, and just the way they set up plays, which hadn't really been seen to that extent before. So, I mean, he's considered the father of the offense. So that's why I would call him a visionary. Um, Steve Kerr is a visionary because he brought, um, you know, motion back into basketball. He didn't invent it. But the basketball of the early teens and the decade before was very much post-dominated, you know, games in the 80s, you know, defense wins all the time. And while he still had very good defensive teams, he also had the weaponry to make an offense that was dramatically different from the one that they'd had before he got there. And I think he was able to see and envision what that offense could be with the players he had. And so I would count him that way. Um, And Phil Wolpert at USF saw in Bill Russell a a unitary game changer. And, you know, to his credit, he he let Russell be Russell. Are the 49ers right now in a good place quarterback-wise? Who the hell knows? (laughs) I mean, hopefully you do. We're talking we're talking nine total starts. We're talking. This is a roster that has few, fewer 
pass attempts by its quarterbacks on the roster than any other team. Um, nobody can tell me with any level of certitude whether Brock Purdy is going to be a good player or not. And even fewer can tell me what Trey Lance is going to be. The benefits they both have, though, is that they are on a team that is not quarterback dominant. So they have maybe a better chance than if you were going to put them on the Vikings or the Giants, you know, or, you know, any other playoff team, you know, that, you know, needs its quarterback to excel. Um, So their bar for success is a little lower, but we don't know if they're going to achieve that or whether, you know, somehow the defense will suddenly become worse and now they have to score 35 points to win. Cause I don't mm-hmm. think the 49er offense is designed for that. And that's not just the quarterback. That's everything. Um, the only year in which they ran up a ton of points was, was the 1919 year. Um, and everybody hated Garoppolo then, but that team scored the 40th highest number of points in the history of the sport. Nobody remembers that. But since then, they've been largely, we're going to run the ball and we're going to defend. And that's how they're built. So the answer to the quarterback question is nobody knows. And anybody who says they do was a lying liar. <laughs> Perfect. So you, you mentioned Montana and, you know, one guy, I think, really sort of become the central figure in the NFL of this current generation is Patrick Mahomes. And obviously very different from Montana in terms of skill set. Um, but there's the potential there for Mahomes to end up on whatever tier we put the Montanas and Brady's and, and those elite type of players. When, when you look at Patrick Mahomes and just what he's accomplished early in his career, how do you maybe compare or and or contrast that to Joe Montana, given that you had a pretty up close view of of uh, his situation and uh, at a similar point in his career? Um, they're radically different. Yeah. Um, Mahomes is his own offensive system because he can make things happen out of nothing. Um, but he also has the ability to put Andy Reid's level of genius into play in a number of ways. I mean, he's essentially ambidextrous. And I don't know if there's ever been another quarterback in the NFL that you could say that about. Um, He makes plays out of nothing. He can change plays that were supposed to go one way and make them go another. Um, Anybody wants to compare Patrick Mahomes to anybody is doing Mahomes a disservice. That said, he hasn't done it long enough to be considered anything more than a really gifted outlier. You know, in an, in five more years, we might be dismissing Tom Brady as the best quarterback ever by saying nobody ever did what Mahomes did. And while Mahomes gives every indication that he could be that, he hasn't done it for enough years for anybody to say, yep, he's the best there is. Um, Montana is a whole different thing. He didn't do it with arm strength. He, you know, he did it with guile. He did it with, you know, superior players around him. Um, and he did it within a system that worked for him. Um, Patrick Mahomes could play in essentially any system, at least based on what we know so far. It'd be interesting to see if, you know, magically tomorrow he got traded to the Lions to see how, how he would function under Dan Campbell. But we don't have that 
that luxury yet. All we know is him and Andy Reid. So all is I it- would say is Mahomes is not comparable to anybody as near as I can par- parcel out. That's what I was going to Is there anybody in the NFL right now even close to that tier that he's in, in your mind? No, because Joe Burrow is a more traditional yet excellent quarterback, but he's, a, you know, he's, he doesn't have skills that make you say, I've never seen that before. I mean, he's a really good quarterback and, and anybody wants to argue that is a fool, but he's not a play creator to Mahomes' extent because he doesn't have Mahomes' gifts. You know, I mean, I think he's got enough vision. I think he's got enough understanding of the job. I think he knows how to remain cool under pressure situations. But Mahomes just does stuff that people can't really explain. That's why, you know, he's the outlier and Burrow isn't. Switching gears a little bit, is there a story that you tip that you haven't told on the record that you know from covering the the dynastic 49ers of the 80s and 90s that you could maybe say that you could tell now maybe without naming names or if you want to name names go ahead but that you know we're we might be outside the statute of limitations that you won't offend anybody or get anybody in trouble well there was the time uh jerry rice robbed that liquor store but <laughs> <laughs> No, there really isn't one that isn't known. Okay. But it's the the one that that people I think are the most surprised by is the fact that Bill Walsh probably got fired by Eddie DeBarlow about 10 times. <laughs> um Walsh was really high strung. DeBarlow was high strung. Um they both took losses really hard. Um and these are two, you know very self-demanding men who, you know, could get on each other's nerves. But until 1988, they were always able to back away from the ledge. But after Walsh won that, won that uh, third Super Bowl, he, 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 he was wrung out. He didn't have, he didn't have the desire to go back. And so that's why he broke down in tears when he was being interviewed in the locker room after they won. Because he just he had nothing left. He'd spent it all. He'd done the 10 years that John Madden always said was the logical lifespan of a coach. And he was he just he was just fried. But before that, they he was fired any number of times, and every time Eddie DeBartolo sort of backed away from it the next day when cooler heads prevailed. So in your mind, like what's the difference between that dynamic between like Bill Walsh and Eddie DeBartolo and say Jim Harbaugh and Trent Baalke and or Jed York, like in that while Walsh and DeBartolo had conflicts, it didn't it didn't completely cause the walls to collapse. The organization still ran well, whereas that didn't seem like it was the case in the latter years with Harbaugh and Baalke and York. Well, Walsh never tried to pick fights with DeBarlo. It was just the natural strains and stresses of we're winning, but we're not winning the way I want to win, or we're not winning when we thought we were going to win. And it was just that. Harbaugh liked to pick fights, and Balky was profoundly inflexible. And so 
they they were inherent enemies. Although in the beginning, Balky was a was a Harbaugh defender when Harbaugh, in his endless search for conflicts, would pick fights with Jet. You know, and and I really, you know, they were getting along fine because, you know, they were suddenly winning after years of not being very good. And then they get to the Super Bowl and Harbaugh wants to be paid like a Super Bowl winning coach. Mm -hmm. And York says, well, you haven't won one yet. And that became the start of the breach. And Bulky had to pick a side at that point. And he picked York because that's how you survive. You never you never. You never back the coach when the when the opponent is the owner. And so that got ugly and it burned out the way you thought it would. I mean, Jim Harbaugh is still at Michigan today because nobody's tried to pick a fight with him on something that he wanted to pick a fight about. So that's the difference. Walsh did not directly confront um, DeBardlow with an eye toward offending him. Whereas, you know, Harbaugh had no such limits. And crossed them plenty of times. You were on the sideline when the catch happened. Do you think that your like physical place, like being on the field when that happened, do you think that changes your perspective on that event at all? Not really. I mean, the only thing that I got out of it was I got a slightly better look at um at Clark and how high he jumped and Everson walls yelling out the F bomb when he saw that Clark had caught the ball. But I don't think it get. I mean, you know, the, the perspective is it's a weird busted play that two guys turned into franchise magic because this is a team that never won before. You know, I mean, they, they had never been, they'd never been to a super bowl. They'd never played in a, in a championship game. Um, this was a moment that sold itself. So I don't know that my perspective was changed in any way because the perspective was right in front of you. It's they're finally not, you know, the third place team anymore. They're they're gonna get to stand on they're gonna get to stand on the podium and it's up to them whether they can stand, you know, in the gold spot rather than the silver spot. And that was it. It just it was a it was a moment that just sold itself. I think a lot of Niners fans would say that's sort of like their favorite Niners achievement, right? Or like their favorite Niners memory. Um, what's your favorite like achievement you've seen happen in sports? Achievement? Or what's the thing that like you'll look back on and say, wow, that, that impressed that sports moment or feat impressed me the most. Um. Well, the one that I thought was the biggest thing I ever saw was the Bird Magic uh, Final Four in 79, because you could tell right then that college basketball became a national game in that moment, because you had the indisputably two best players in the country playing against each other in the championship uh, in a sport that had been largely regional before that. And it was the first time that you got a real national audience to watch this. And within, within two years, I want to say they were, they were done playing in gyms. They were playing in arena. Uh, they're playing in stadiums. And that became the making of the sport. And that's the one that, that stands out most to me because you don't have 20 million brackets 
being played now if it wasn't for that game. You know, maybe there would have been a moment later, but, you know, that was the first one that galvanized an entire country that had otherwise been not terribly keen on it, you know, as a as a huge event. You know, people cared about the Kentucky Derby more than that. You know, now almost nobody cares about the Kentucky Derby in relationship to the the, the NC2A tournament. So that, that's the one that stands out for me. And and it also sort of even went on to transcend that and in many ways be like form what's become the modern NBA, right? Like the magic in magic in Larry in the eighties and that, you know, Dr. J too, um, sort of turned the NBA into more of the commercial enterprise that it is now in comparison to when it was before you know, the shot clock and before games were, were televised live. Well, that, that the credit for that goes more to bird and magic. Yeah. Um, because when Dr. J was, you know, in his, in his ascendancy, you know, that was probably about a decade ago when he made the, made the ABA good enough to force a merger with the NBA. But as a, as a TV product, the NBA didn't really break out until the Lakers and Celtics became great again. And that was due in large part to the fact that Bird and Magic were perfect antagonists in that they both wanted the same thing and were good enough to go out and get it. And it became sort of a, a yearly rite of passage. If if Bird and Magic weren't in the final, you felt almost like you got cheated. You know, and that does slight some very good teams like the the 83 Sixers with, you know, with Irving and Moses Malone and Bobby Jones and like that. But they made those two guys made a decade and that decade has only grown since then. And again, it's largely because of them, because they begat Michael Jordan, who begat LeBron James, who, you know, we'll see who the next one of those is. But, you know, they they re they reinstituted the line where one extraordinary player you know gives way to another one gives way to another one and that's now been 40 years we're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It felt like we got one of the big moments with the WBC final with Shohei Otani and Mike Trout. Did you catch that at all? Yeah. What did uh, you What did you think of it? Like, because for me, that was like that might be the biggest baseball moment I've ever seen. Like, all due respect to Barry Bonds and Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire and all that, that just felt like like a a historical thing that happened. Well, but that was only the culmination of a two week tournament in which. Every fan who was any at any of those games and all the players all seemed to be enjoying themselves and really like loving being part of this. And baseball has spent so much time for so long now beating itself up because the games are too long or there's not enough action or kids don't want to watch it. They've, they've defined themselves by what they aren't and what people don't like about them. And this was like two weeks, literally, when players, you could tell they were playing with joy. And when you can make that come across a television screen, it becomes its own moment. I mean, you know, Otani striking out Trout to end the game, the the championship game. It's a nice moment, but it was the culmination of two weeks of baseball as fun, not baseball as drag. And Mm -hmm. so I think in that way, it's a moment that defined a, a fortnight where baseball wasn't busy kicking itself in the face for not being cool enough because that, that two weeks was cool. It was fun. And if baseball can figure out how to make their game and watching it fun again, then nobody will be talking about how it's a dying sport anymore. I, I make this argument. I mean, I don't talk a, a whole lot of baseball with, with people recently because I'm an A's fan and and any discussion of of baseball just becomes super super depressing but one one argument I've always made is that 162 games is probably just too many and and you mentioned the joy that these guys play with over this two week tournament I wonder how possible it is to have joy when you have a 162 game season and these guys are playing with you know, two or three or maybe four days off a month. Like, and I know the pushback from the traditional baseball media is that, you know, it's, it's very, they're very just conservative in nature when it comes to the numbers and the history books and the context of what all the records are. But it seems to me that like, even in even in the playoffs and even in like the wild card games where you have those very high intense game high intensity games that don't really exist over a 162 game slate because there are so many games that baseball has kind of a sample size problem and it does kind of zap the joy from the game and as somebody in in your position who 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 observes the the, the sport for as long as you have like where do you stand on where baseball is in terms of you know, the the importance of its history and the 162 game schedule and its records versus 
finding ways to maybe bring that joy that we saw in the World Baseball Classic back to the game on a more regular basis? Well, the numbers, by their very definition, are very cold and antiseptic. And it's permeated into the way general managers operate their teams. It's very analytics-based. And it's and the result of that, not that numbers in and of themselves are bad, but it's created a game in which the main components are the walk, the strikeout, and the home run. Three things that are not physically taxing. The problem with the argument that there are too many games for there to be much joy doesn't ring well with me because there are lots of players now who play with a, a level of joy on an almost daily basis. It's not physically taxing to be happy about your job. And part of the problem is that American culture isn't really about the grind that people in baseball want to imagine it is. Sure, it's a grind, but you can, you know, you can watch a guy go from first to third and really enjoy the result when he slides into third. Um, and you can do that on an almost daily basis somewhere. I mean, there's 2,430 games. I mean, it just, you're not going to have, you know, 1,500 of them being stone cold bores. There are always going to be moments. And one of the ways you can get those moments back is to create a game that has more inherent action in it. You know, you know, more of a reliance on speed and athletic ability and, you know, diving into the gap to cut off a, a, a potential double. I mean, just things where you see athletes being athletes. Um, one of the things that's always amused me about all these new rules and worrying about time of game is that that's not the problem. You can get a great deal of joy out of a 17-inning game, but you're not going to get much joy out of a 17-inning game in which there were 25 walks and 32 strikeouts and five singles. I mean, just, you know, I mean, and that's extreme, but, you know, you want to see players doing things, mm -hmm. you know, and the problem with the game now is that it's not that it's too long, it's too sterile. You know, everybody plays the same kind of game the same way. It's very uh, homogeneous and it's not, it's not good because, every game blends into the other when everybody's playing the same style. And until they figure out a way to make it make more sense to have stolen bases, to have hitting behind the runner, you know, going first to third, doing athletic things in athletic ways, um, baseball is going to seem like a drag. So it's up to the people running baseball to do not what is the pragmatic thing, but to do what is the dramatic thing. And that means unthinking a lot of presumptions that they've made about the sport in the last 20 years and that they hold on to like it's religion. I'm going to write a blog post after this titled Ray Ratto says Billy Bean killed baseball. Mm, well, Ray, he didn't kill it because <laughs> he, he got most of his theories from Scott, from Sandy Alderson, we got most of his theories, quite frankly, from Branch Rickey. I mean, it's, what's what you're seeing now is not new, but what it is, it's similar across the board. Everybody is trying to operate like the Tampa Bay Rays. 
because you don't have to spend a lot of money, but you can win a bunch of games and maybe you'll get lucky one time and win a World Series. When in fact, most people want to watch Otani versus Trout or they want to watch Bryce Harper or they want to watch great athletes doing great things. They want to watch Mookie Betts. They want to watch, you know, Max Scherzer. You know, it's it's a sport after all. And you're charging entertainment prices for that sport. Well, if you're not entertaining, you shouldn't get that money. So they've got to figure out a, a way to make this game more entertaining, which means more action, which means more dynamism, which means different different teams doing different things to achieve the same end. And right now they don't have that. Do you think the rule changes are a good idea? I have no idea. Um, Perfect. We want well. We want to see if if they'll work. Mm-hmm. What I what I think though, and this is why you know baseball's in the conundrum. It is now that every other thing they've tried in the last fifteen years has actually led to the the game being more static and more dry. And I think the new rules are going to work in favor of pitchers rather than the hitters. When everybody mm-hmm. says they'd like to see more offense. And I think the trick is in figuring out a way to kill the dead spots in a game, you know, while not obsessing about the clock. The, the dead spots are, you know, they're not just between pitches, they're within the game. You know, it's just, it's, you know, a bunch of walks and a bunch of strikeouts aren't fun to watch. Right. You know, they're just not. And, you know, they're, they're, I, I go back to this word. There's no dynamism in the modern game. If there is any, it's entirely by accident. And baseball has to figure out a way how to redefine how they play it without redefining what it is they're doing when they're playing. Right. And until they do that, and it's a, it's a huge ask, and I don't know if anybody in baseball now is up to that job, but you know, that's how you, that's how you regain your place as an entertainment vehicle that people want to gravitate to. It used to be a national game and it's now a regional game Mm -hmm. and there's no money in getting smaller. So they have to figure out how to take dynamic players like Otani, like Trout, like Vladimir Guerrero, you know, like Mookie Betts, like Bryce Harper, and there and there's dozens of others like it, and make them be the walking, talking advertisement for why you want to watch this, hmm. right? Yeah. So this this is a 49ers podcast, and um, the inter- we don't want to talk about this. <laughs> I actually, hang on, hang on. We can yeah. end on that one. I have one more. I want to talk about you for a second, Ray. Oh, no, no, okay. no, 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 no. We don't want to do that. Let's talk football. I love football. No, you're a big football guy. The most meaningful thing in my life. <laughs> my favorite thing was when I would have to send out emails like, hey, who wants a credential? And your responses to those emails were always delightful. Um, but no, your 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 writing style and your writing voice is really unique. Is that something that you started with or have you kind of developed that over the years? I don't know, because I don't look at it as a style. Um I just, it just comes out. It just, it's, it's just how I write. It's how I think. I mean, I mean, I'm not trying to sound, you know, important because what I've done is not important. You know, nobody, 
nobody has escaped a four car crash on on the Nimitz because of me. I mean, it's just <laughs> sure. I just I I'm I'm skeptical, bordering on cynical, because I've seen too much. But I also know that there's an element to sports that makes it vital to the national character in some way. And I just sort of tried to capture what my view of that is. So I don't, I don't have a working style. Ah, somebody's calling now to complain. Um, I don't have a working style that I, that, I mean, I usually, if, if somebody else wants to find it, they're, they're certainly entitled to tell me, but I'm, I just get from word one to word 900 and, when I'm done, I'm done. I don't, I'm not, I'm not a romantic in terms of my work. <laughs> I thought, you know what? That's, that's a surprise. <laughs> well, nobody asked you, shut up. <laughs> um, I told you not to ask a question. I, I warned you this. You did. No, you did. You did. You made it very clear. So I find the way fans and maybe even NFL power brokers, the way they define success as fascinating, right? Because so often everyone will say they define success by championships, but championships are, are very hard to win. And I wouldn't say somebody failed in their career if they reached a point where they're an NFL head coach or at the top of their profession, but they haven't won a championship. And with that said, like, you know, maybe the 49ers win a Super Bowl or two at some point in the foreseeable future, and maybe they don't. Um, and the the context of the organization is the 80s and 90s and the Super Bowls they've won, the success they've had under Kyle Shanahan to this point without winning a Super Bowl. But, like, can Kyle Shanahan survive in your mind? Like, the way you view sports, can Kyle Shanahan be a successful head coach in the context of the 49ers if, say, in the next three years, he does not win a championship? If he doesn't win a championship in three years, he should be jailed. <laughs> Perfect. Enough's enough. You know, you, you had enough. That'll be nine years. you got nothing. Go, go spend time in a Louisiana to jail. Yeah, smart guy. <laughs> No, this is this, this is the logical extension of the Damian Lillard argument, which is, can you be considered a great player without a ring? And the answer to that is, of course you can, until you realize that your greatness is not defined by you, it's defined by other people. And some of those other people demand jewelry before they'll grant anything to you. So... That's really a cultural argument more than it is anything else. But it's very reminiscent because I think it's changed a bit over the years in that English soccer is slowly but surely becoming the new template of the way sports is perceived in America in that coaches don't get a lot of time to prove that they're good. They, you know, if you don't win, if you don't win a trophy within three years, it's your ass. And I think the view is, all right, you're a big club, you've got big money, but you haven't won an FA Cup, you haven't won a Champions League, you haven't won the Premiership. You're not fun. You know, you suck. <laughs> um, that's 
And I think that's sort of permeated over to this side of the, of the, of the ocean as well. It's people define the bills of the eighties or the bills of the nineties as a failure because they went to four straight Super Bowls and didn't win any of them. Well, that view changes the further away you get from it because now there's more historical context to show how difficult it really is to get to four in a row, you know, whether you win them or not. But that's a, that's a perception thing that frankly, I don't know is ever going to go back. I mean, it's just, it's, we're, we're all, we're all invested in the result to the, to the extent that now with gambling being more prevalent because it's more, it's legal. Um, people only want to know, well, did, did you, did you win for me or did you not? And if you didn't win for me, you know, then I lost something, you screwed me. And so people take it more personally than they did before. Um, I, I don't know that you can ever put that genie back in the bottle. I think it, I think it is, it's winner take all. And maybe it's always been that, but I don't know that it's been that to this extent. And I don't know that it's ever going to go back because that's what we decided our culture should be. And that's why Maybe. I hate people. <laughs> that's the note to end on, Ray. You've been super generous with your time. And uh, it's really been a pleasure. And I mean, no, you don't. I do. From the bottom of my heart. This is great. Okay. Well, then, well, then let me rephrase it. It wasn't a pleasure for me. I know. It <laughs> and that's why we appreciate you. Thanks, man. Thanks All so right, much, Ray. It's great having you. Yeah. Man, that was fucking painful. <laughs> Keep that. Uh, yeah. No. <laughs>